The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. This is Jacob Yasha Schneider, editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, welcoming you to the American Thoracic Society's podcast. I would like to introduce our editorial board member, Dr. Nathan Sim of the Section of Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine at the Veterans Affairs Hospital in Washington, D.C. He is an assistant professor of medicine at George Washington University and conducts translational research on biomarkers of inflammation and coagulation in ARDS and sepsis. Welcome, Dr. Sim. Thanks, Yasha. In today's podcast, I'm joined by Steve Matai and Lou Rubin to discuss Dr. Matai's article, The Minimal Important Difference in the Six-Minute Walk Test for Patients with Pulmonary Arterial Hypertension, published in the September 1, 2012, American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Matai is Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Rubin is Emeritus Professor of Medicine and Emeritus Director of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine in La Jolla, California. Thank you both for joining me today. Dr. Matai, I'd like to start the podcast by asking you to provide some background for our listeners. Please explain the importance of the six-minute walk test in pulmonary arterial hypertension. Thank you, Dr. Seem. So the six-minute walk test has been used as the primary outcome measure in most of the clinical trials of therapeutic agents in pulmonary arterial hypertension and remains to date the primary metric of efficacy used by regulatory bodies for approval of these medications. We often use them on a clinical basis also to assess someone's response to therapy and to get an idea of their functional capacity. Dr. Rubin, I was hoping you could provide us with some further historical context. How did the six-minute walk test become the standard primary endpoint in trials of treatments for pulmonary arterial hypertension? Sure. It dates back to the early development of treatments for pulmonary arterial hypertension and the early studies with the first treatment approved for PAH, and that was intravenous epoprostenol. And with discussions with the regulatory agencies, it was very clear that in order to demonstrate efficacy of a treatment for a disease like pulmonary arterial hypertension, it's some measure of clinical benefit that could be assessed objectively and reproducibly that would have meaning to the patient was necessary. We then recognized that in the very earliest studies of continuous intravenous epoprostenol that were done by Tim Higginbottom and his colleagues at Cambridge University, they had reported measurements of walk distance. At that time, they were using the shuttle test as a measure of walk distance, something that had been used for assessing exercise capacity in chronic respiratory diseases, particularly in Europe. And it was decided at that point that a modification of that using the six-minute walk test, which was felt to be somewhat easier to perform and more widely usable, would be the primary endpoint of that first study. And that was 
recognized and accepted by the FDA and the European regulatory agencies. And having demonstrated that there was indeed an improvement in walk test in those studies, and in fact there was a correlation between the improvement in walk test and the change in hemodynamic parameters, particularly pulmonary vascular resistance, I think it then became the logical primary endpoint for subsequent clinical trials of new therapies up to the present day. Dr. Rubin, just as a follow-up, talked about the correlation between the six-minute walk test and hemodynamic measures like pulmonary vascular resistance. Is there evidence that the six-minute walk test can be a surrogate for clinically important endpoints such as mortality? Well, one of the interesting findings in the original epoprostenol study was that no patient who had a six-minute walk test below 150 meters survived nine months. And so I think that was the first demonstration that the severity of exercise limitation as assessed by the walk test was indeed a, a marker of poor outcome. And subsequent studies have confirmed that in a number of studies looking at their own individual experience at their centers with epoprostenol, for example, McLaughlin and colleagues and Sitbone and his associates both demonstrated that six-minute walk was one of the parameters that was predictive of survival. And other studies as well have shown that patients with a low six-minute walk have a poorer outcome. And most of the recent studies have suggested that a six-minute walk somewhere in the range, I would say, of between 375 and 400 meters, below that threshold level, the outcome is worse than patients who can achieve and maintain a six-minute walk above that level. Dr. Rubin, I'd ask one more follow-up about that before we get to the uh, the specifics of Dr. Matai's paper. You mentioned absolute levels of six-minute walk distance, but we see many papers now quoting changes in six-minute walk distance. So could you summarize the evidence that changes in in six-minute walk distance with treatment are associated with improvements in clinically important endpoints? Yes, well, I think that is an important point because I think that the magnitude of change may be less important than achieving an absolute level. So, for example, an individual who's already walking 450 meters, if they improve by 35 meters, that's nice, but I'm not sure there's a huge clinical translation to that or a prognostic meaning to that. On the other hand, I'd say a patient who's at uh, 300, 350, they improve that same 35 meters. I think that both has some clinical interpretability, which I think uh, Dr. Matai's study certainly supports, but I think it also, uh, from the data, has prognostic implications. So I think it's an important question to address what degree of change is clinically meaningful, but I also 
tend to believe from the data as well as my own experience that achieving a threshold is important. Dr. McTyler, now that we have that background information, let's discuss the specifics of your paper. Please tell us what was the objective of your study? Sure. So the objective of this study was to determine the minimally important difference for the six-minute walk test in patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension. And the minimally important difference, or the minimal important difference, can be defined many ways. The definition that we chose was the smallest change or difference in an outcome measure perceived as beneficial that would justify a change in the patient's medical management. And to follow up, your analysis based on data from a trial by the first study group, can you describe this study, including its findings? Sure. So the first study was a double-blind placebo-controlled study of about 400 patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension who were either treatment-naive or on background therapy with an endothelial receptor antagonist at enrollment and they were randomized to receive various doses of tadalafil, a phosphodiesterase inhibitor. The primary outcome of the study was to look at changes in six-minute walk distance from baseline to week 16 of the study, which was the end of the study. And then other outcome measures, secondary outcome measures that were included were quality of life assessed by the medical outcomes SF36 or short form 36, and the goal was to see if this medication improved six-minute walk distance in this patient population. Dr. McTighe, you used anchor-based and distributional methods of analysis to determine the minimal important difference you just described. Could you please describe these methods for us and explain why you used both types of methods? Sure. So distributional-based methods to determine the MID really focus on statistical methodology to determine the change in a particular measure that exceeds or just exceeds the noise of that measure. So with any type of measure you take, there's some variability around that measure. And in a population of patients, you can determine what that variability or standard deviation of that measure is. There are various methods statistically that can estimate what a difference in that particular outcome is that's greater than the noise or the variability in that measure. So distributional methods really kind of focus on that. They're limited in the sense that they are only based upon the distribution of that particular measure in the study. So one way to perhaps make it more clinically relevant is to perform anchor-based analyses. Anchor-based analyses look at the relationship between the change in the the measure of interest, in this case a six-minute walk distance, and changes in another clinically relevant outcome for which there is a known MID, in this case the physical component summary score of the SF36. If the relationship between the change in six-minute walk distance in this case and the change in the, in the physical component summary score, or PCS, of the SF36 is sufficiently strong, and the general guidelines are an R value greater than about 0.3 in uh, correlation analysis, then you can consider that relationship strong enough that you could look at the, at the relationship in terms of a slope and determine the change in the six-minute walk test that would correspond to a minimally important difference for the PCS of the SF36. So you have both a clinical-based interpretation of the MID and a statistical-based interpretation of the MID. And combining those two methodologies, you can come up with an overall estimate of MID. So Dr. Matai, please tell us what you found in terms of a minimal important difference. In this particular study, using data from the first trial, we performed both the distributional and anchor-based analyses. And in the distributional-based analyses, 
we found that the MID of the six-minute walk test ranged from about 25 meters up to 38, 39 meters. And when we compared that to the anchor-based method, which was using the physical component summary score as the anchor, we found a minimally important difference in the six-minute walk test of around 38, 39 meters. When we put these estimates together and combined the two methodologies, we settled on a value of about 33 meters as the minimally important difference for the six-minute walk test. We talked earlier about the six-minute walk test correlating with uh, changes in hemodynamic variables such as pulmonary vascular resistance. Dr. Matai, did you evaluate the relationship between six-minute walk test changes and any change in hemodynamic variables? We did not do that in this particular analysis, but I think it's a great idea and something that we'll be looking at in future investigations with this particular data set. And Dr. Rubin, I'd ask if you have any general comments about the study findings? Well, first of all, I commend Dr. Matai and his colleagues for doing what I think is a very important study to help guide not only clinical practice, but also future trial design, and also for educating me as well as I think uh, a lot of colleagues in our pulmonary community on some methodology that we were not familiar with previously that I think has some uh, benefit and rigor. I think that the question of the minimal degree of improvement in six-minute walk in pulmonary hypertension is an important one and a valid one, one that has garnered some attention in particular over the last year or so, given the large number, relatively speaking now, of both new therapies for pulmonary hypertension and new ones on the horizon. And so I think an assessment of what is truly not just statistically significant, but clinically meaningful, really is quite important. And the findings from this study, while slightly different from another study recently published by Gabler, reinforce that somewhere in the range of 30 to 40 meters is a level that is likely to be clinically important. There are some limitations to this study, and as there are for all studies and the Gabler study, one is that it is retrospective, and uh, particularly in this study, it's looking at one clinical trial and limiting the analysis to that. The second is that these studies are relatively short-term. They tend to be three to four months, at least up until now, and so we're looking at a snapshot of the lifespan, hopefully, of many patients with PAH, and those exercise capacities can change over uh, longer periods of time one way or another. And another question that I think is unresolved is the difference between treatment-naive patients and patients who are on background therapy. The first trial is somewhat unique up to this point in the sense that it included patients who were both treatment naive or on a background endothelial and receptor antagonist. And there probably are some substantial differences between those two populations, which the first study also demonstrated. The patients who are treatment naive are most likely to get a big boost in their exercise capacity because they're going 
from zero to a treatment if they're on the active treatment. If they're on placebo, they're, as a group at least, likely to either have no response or even deteriorate somewhat, and that magnifies the placebo-corrected treatment effect. Whereas patients who are on a background therapy are likely, if they're assigned to the placebo arm, they're likely to remain fairly stable and not deteriorate because they're on a therapy in addition to placebo. And the magnitude of improvement on top of background therapy for the patients who are getting the active drug may be less than a treatment-naive patient. And so is the minimal important difference in six-minute walk the same or different for treatment-naive versus already treated patients? And I think that's an important and unresolved question. And then finally, we have a new era, I think, where the six-minute walk, I think, will no longer be a primary endpoint in current and future trials in PAH, but rather will be relegated down to a secondary or reinforcing endpoint, and morbidity mortality will now be the primary endpoint. The Seraphin study with Messitantam, it's a new endothelin receptor antagonist, and only the, we only have at this point the press release, top-line data, but interestingly, while there was a treatment-associated reduction, significant reduction in morbidity mortality, the average treatment time of two years, the six-minute walk test at six months was in the range of 16 meters, placebo corrected. So, you know, I think we're now in a situation where the question can be, what does six-minute walk mean at all? Dr. Matai, I'd ask for your comments. Dr. Rubin's comments about clinical worsening as a primary outcome measure in clinical trials is very important, and I think that that is really the way the field is going to be moving. The utility of the six-minute walk test in that particular setting, I think, is something that we're going to have to look at. And while I think clinical worsening makes a lot of sense in terms of clinical trials, I think there might be challenges in incorporating that into clinical practice. So if the outcome is waiting for a clinical event to occur before to determine the efficacy of a treatment and not preceding a clinical event, I think that might be challenging from a clinical practice standpoint to to implement that. Whereas a six-minute walk test, if someone were to repeat that on a regular basis in clinical practice and notice that there were changes in six-minute walk distance that might be related to an MID, that potentially could be a useful way to use six-minute walk test in a clinical setting. Dr. Rubin, I'd ask your thoughts on Dr. Matai's comments. Well, I agree completely. And in fact, there's uh, room for both integrated into a composite primary endpoint of clinical failure. And that is the endpoint of the ongoing AMBITION trial. The AMBITION trial is a study that is addressing the question, does upfront de novo combination therapy with a PD-5 and an ETRA, does it produce a superior effect to monotherapy with either a PD-5 or an ETRA alone? So it's an important study because, like many other diseases, combination therapy 
needs to be tested, and if starting with a combination results in better outcome, then that should be adopted. And the endpoint in that study is clinical failure. And so it takes into account not only worsening, but lack of improvement is considered a clinical failure as well. It's not sufficient to just prevent the patient from getting worse with the treatment. We want to actually improve them. And part of the definition used in that clinical failure is a change in or lack of change in six-minute walk. A lack of improvement as well as worsening comprise the composite endpoint in ambition, and I think that's a way to address Steve's comment about clinical utility. Dr. Matai, Dr. Rubin alluded to another study by Gabler, and there's two other studies I've seen of a minimal important difference in six-minute walk tests in PAH. Gilbert and colleagues published in Chess in 2009 and the Gabler in press and circulation, the estimated MID was 41 and 42 meters respectively, slightly higher than what you've found. What factors may account for the difference in MID in these two studies compared to your study? So the Gilbert study in CHEST in 2009 used data from the SUPER study, which is another study of phosphodiesterase inhibitor sildenafil in uh, patients with PAH. And the patient population actually was remarkably similar to the patient population in terms of their demographics and hemodynamics at baseline that were included in the first study. The methodology that Gilbert and colleagues chose to use was uh, distributional methodology only. So they did not use anchor-based methods that would tie changes in walk distance to a patient-based or patient-related outcome. So I think that is one reason potentially for differences in our estimates. In the Gabler study, they looked at change in six-minute walk test and its relationship to short-term clinical outcomes. And they looked at all the data that had been presented to the FDA for drugs that were presented for approval in pulmonary arterial hypertension. So essentially their anchor was a clinical event. Therefore, I would expect that the MID might differ from a study such as ours where we looked at changes in quality of life as the anchor. So I think that there are differences in the methods and the study design that would explain those differences. I think when we're talking about six-minute walk test and patient-related outcomes, there is some expected variability in the estimates for MID. And I think that even with the differences in the methodologies, I would still consider these differences within the range of 30 to 40 meters, as Dr. Rubin pointed out earlier. Dr. Montai, one thing you mentioned in your manuscript was that the MID for six-minute walk test found in your study was remarkably similar to the MID for six-minute walk in COPD and in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis determined in other papers. I was wondering why the MID was similar in these diseases with clearly different underlying pathophysiologic basis. That's a very good question, and I'm not sure that anyone has, a, has an answer for I can surmise that the recognition of a clinically relevant change in walk distance as it pertains to another anchor, so for instance, quality of life or shortness of breath, you might argue that regardless of the cardiopulmonary disease, that particular change in walk test that would be associated with a reduction in dyspnea or an improvement in quality of life might be similar across disease states. 
pathophysiologically, there seems to be a lot of variability overall comparing interstitial lung disease, COPD, for instance, or pulmonary hypertension in the potential mechanisms of how that might limit functional capacity or exercise capacity. You could imagine that patients with COPD being a systemic disease, their involvement of their peripheral musculature might be different than somebody who has interstitial lung disease, depending upon the etiology. So I don't have a great explanation for why that would be, but beyond that, if we're talking about relating changes in walk test to changes in a patient-related outcome, the minimal detectable difference or the minimal important difference might be based upon reductions in shortness of breath or improvements in quality of life, which might be universal across disease states. Dr. Rubin, one would think that an increase in the MID of 33 meters, as found in Dr. Matai's study, will be more meaningful for a patient who, for example, is WHO functional class 4 compared to a patient who is WHO class 1. And if we do use an MID threshold, uh, should it vary based on functional class? Well, I agree with you. I think that is one of the limitations to trying to apply an MID to the clinical arena. Somebody who is functional class 4, who almost by definition is bedridden, 30 meters is huge. It means they can get back and forth to the bathroom or to the kitchen, whereas somebody who's functional class 1, who's walking 500 meters, I don't think 30 meters is going to make a difference for them clinically. And so I think there is a difference there in terms of the meaningfulness, and I think that goes back to what I said earlier, that in my mind, in my clinical use, application. I look for thresholds. I think those are important. Somebody who's walking, who's class four, who's now walking 35 meters, that will translate to some clinical improvement for that patient that is very personally relevant to them, but they're still in a very poor prognostic category, whereas somebody who's 500 doesn't feel any better when they walk 535 it's a change, but not one that will affect my management. Dr. Matthias, we close this podcast. I'd like to ask you, as the study author, how does your study impact planning of future trials of pulmonary arterial hypertension treatment? A very good question and challenging to answer, but I think what Dr. Rubin has discussed regarding the movement away from the six-minute walk test perhaps as the primary outcome measure in clinical trials is an important one. And I agree with him that looking at clinical events that may incorporate six-minute walk test as part of that definition of clinical event makes a lot of sense. I think on a day-to-day basis, using six-minute walk test might continue to be important and that we would continue to follow six-minute walk test and change in six-minute walk test on an individual level. But in terms of a primary outcome measure, I'm not sure of it that using six-minute walk test as a primary outcome measure will be what's going to happen in the future. Dr. Rubin, at this point, are we able to conduct adequately powered trials of pulmonary arterial hypertension treatment with endpoints such as mortality or the combined endpoints of clinical failure, as you mentioned, as the primary endpoint? I think the answer to that is definitely yes. The study I alluded to was an international, a global study that consisted of roughly 750 patients. 
And again, to by historical context, to, to go back to what we were talking about in the very beginning of this podcast, the pivotal trial with epoprostenol was 81 patients. So we're now doing trials not even 20 years after the original trial, 15 or so years, that is now 10 times the size. And in contrast to three-month trial, the average time on therapy in this morbidity mortality trial was two years. So the answer is yes, they can be done. They are being done. There are challenges, no doubt, but uh, there are several ongoing morbidity mortality trials that have enrolled and are enrolling. So I think we now can do these studies. What we cannot do is a mortality study alone. I think that is not feasible for a variety of reasons. First, the number of deaths, fortunately, is relatively small, even in these long-term two-plus-year trials. And so one would need a very large number of patients, even larger than 700, 5,800 patients, for a longer period of time in order to have enough events to be able to study. And secondly, we have rescue therapies, intravenous prostanoids, and in some parts of the world, uh, urgent lung transplantation, where patients can be transplanted within several days because of the way that they prioritize. And obviously, we can't withhold those aggressive approaches to therapy. And so doing a simple mortality study is just not feasible in this disease. But mortality is a composite, part of a composite endpoint, is doable, is being done, and one can look at all-cause mortality as well as disease-related mortality, and I think that can provide some useful information. Thank you both for joining me today. That will bring today's podcast to a close. You can find Dr. Matai's article as well as Dr. Rubin's accompanying editorial in the September 1, 2012 issue of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. A complete archive of the ATS article discussion podcast can be found at thoracic.org or by searching in iTunes for American Thoracic Society article discussion. I'm Nitin Seem for the American Thoracic Society.